So white people, you keep asking us what you can do differently to be more anti-racist, an emphasis on the doing here in that first sentence. So we're spending the summer going through things in more of a bite-sized way so that everyone knows the basics around the most commonly asked questions and issues around racism that we see in this country today. And before we go any further, we'd like to emphasize that this is not, I repeat, not a checklist. This is simply a primer. And if you want more and want to take more deep dives into stuff that we're talking about over the summer, please go buy our book. So welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We've been best friends for 25 years, ever since we met as undergrads at Harvard. And now Misasha is a lawyer married to a black man and has very mixed race boys. The world sees as black. Me, Sarah, I'm a life coach and I'm married to a white Canadian man and have two white presenting girls. Together, we help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. All right. So I feel like we have an agenda for today's conversation, which is amazing. It's a, it seems very official. Right. I feel like if we know this and you can know that these are the five things you're going to learn today. All right. So the first thing on our list of topics is the shift that we all need to take from being not racist to anti-racist. Second one, why you should never say you're colorblind. Third up is pushbacks, including cancel culture and perfectionism. Fourth is what do we say or do with our kids? And finally, we're going to end with the ridiculous amount of power women have to make change in this space. Woot, woot. Yay, women. (laughs) All right, let's get started. Not racist to anti-racist. Remember, these are like the biggest questions and the things we come against. So let us know how this lands with you. So what should people do to change from this phrase, I'm not racist, which we will debunk in a moment, to being anti-racist? Right. I think what we need to do is help people understand what we mean by anti-racist and why we believe you cannot be not racist. And in order to understand this, Misasha, you had the pleasure of introducing Dr. Beverly Tatum. Could you share the moving walkway example? Because I think this is the clearest way we can help people understand what we mean by these terms. Yeah. And I love Dr. Tatum's example because it's such a visual one, right? So imagine a moving walkway and like the kind that you see at airports, right? And the walkway is moving in one direction and that's the direction that society is moving. And since we live in a country, you know, with institutional racism, systemic racism, the direction that the walkway is moving is towards racism, right? More racism. So you're on the walkway. If you're walking on the walkway in the same direction that it's moving, you are actively racist, right? You're out there with tiki torches, You are saying and doing things in society that support and promotes racism in our society. So let's say you're on the walkway, but you're standing. You're standing on the walkway. You're not walking, but you're facing the direction in which the walkway is moving, which again is towards racism. That means you might not be out there with tiki torches, but what you are thinking, what you might be saying to your friends, what you might be doing not in very overt ways, but in more subtle ways, is continuing to support and promote racism and racist ideologies in this country. All right, so here's the trickier one. What if you're on that walkway, you're standing, but you're facing in the direction that the walkway is not moving, right? So you're looking back or you're looking in a different direction. This is where you are if you are not racist. Heavy air quotes, not racist. And the important thing to note here is you're not walking, 
right? So you might, because your back is towards the direction of racism, you might be thinking like, I'm not racist. I've got a black friend. You know, you privately believe that maybe, you know, equality is what and equity is what we should be striving for, but you're not doing anything about it, right? And this is the key difference between not racist and anti-racist, because an anti-racist on this walkway is walking actively in the direction of like away from the way the walkway is moving. So you're like that kid who walks the wrong way on the walkways. But in this case, it's the right way because it's moving away from racism or towards anti-racism. So that means that you are out there getting loud, saying and doing things in your spheres of influence that make the world more anti-racist. So that's the difference. And I love that. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think it's important to say that not racist person is still passively getting pulled in the direction of racism. So while they may think that they're facing away from it, they are still complicit with a system moving along in the direction of racism. And so it's really only the anti-racist who's moving in the other direction. So can you imagine with, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, America is split into those four even categories, but say it's like, three quarters of those types of people are moving in the direction of racism. How loud do we have to get in the anti-racist category? It's only one fourth of those buckets in order to offset three quarters of the rest of the people. I think that is where we're saying, please speak up, start moving, do something. And it doesn't have to be showing up at a protest. It can be so many other things. And we'll get into more of that soon. I would also like to note that if you're calling yourself an ally, first of all, you can't call yourself an ally. It comes from your actions, not your decision to be an ally without action. But a lot of times we see allies or people who are self-proclaimed allies in that not racist position on the walkway. So if you're committed to allyship, that is an active word, right? That is a verb. And we'll do an episode on that later this summer, performative allyship and other stuff. So yes, look out for that episode. I love that point. All right. Bullet two, Misasha. Yes. This one gets your blood boiling. Why should we never say that we are colorblind? Right. So I can give the background if you want to share your personal story. So I get it, right? Like if you think back to your childhood, when was the first time you remember talking about race? Were you one of the many people raised by white parents who hushed you? Being like, shh, we don't talk about that when you commented on someone's skin color. We asked that because in a lot of the book tour conversations that we had, a lot of white women said, but I was raised to say we were colorblind. I raised my children to know that they were colorblind, that we liked and cared for all people equally, right? That's what we're talking about. On another scenario, have you ever been in like that pack of moms who's trying to point out that group of kids on the other side of the playground, you can barely freaking see them, but they tiptoe around. They're trying to talk about this one kid because there's some great story. And like, they even go to like little stripe down their white sock on the side. And you realize that they're talking about the only black kid in the group. And you're like, you can just say that this is the one black kid in the group of white kids. You probably would have said that's the, the brunette or that's the blonde or that's the redhead. Like we can talk about skin characteristics as well in terms of observation. and But all of this is this attempt to be colorblind. So why does that make your blood boil? Yeah. Well, first of all, race is a social construct, right? Skin color is science. And so I, I think that we need to continue to keep that lens on. But, you know, Sarah, to your question, I think when people say they don't see color, they don't understand that, you know, in my household and a lot of other households, right, of people, melanated individuals, right? You teach your kids to be very proud of their color, right? I do. 
and that their color is part of who they are, right? It's part of their identity. And when you say, I don't see color, you're negating that pride that I've instilled in my kids, right? You're basically removing that part of their identity. And I understand that that might not be your intention, but as we talk about a lot on the podcast, it's not your intention, it's the impact on the listener. So instead of colorblind, you know, Colin Seal in an earlier podcast episode told us about color kind, or we've heard recently color brave, right? Let's replace colorblind with those two things because it is okay to see people's skin color Everyone does it, all right? We cannot pretend that kids don't see color, that adults don't see color. And I think that, you know, it is different when we are seeing skin color versus when we are placing a hierarchy on which skin color is the best. That's not okay, right? But seeing skin color, acknowledging it, acknowledging the beauty in our different skin colors, that's super important. Love it. Okay, so we have deconstructed, I'm not racist, and but we don't see color. I think there's at least two more buckets of pushbacks that we need to address in this conversation. So one of them is that people don't feel well-informed, so they don't want to speak up or else they might mess up and they'll be canceled, right? That cancel culture. So we stand against cancel culture. We'll get to that in a second, but you know what? I think it's important to acknowledge that it's absolutely possible that you grew up in a state that did not teach the real history of the United States. It's worth noting that Massachusetts mentioned slavery 104 times in its history and social studies framework. In Louisiana's standards for K-12 social studies, they talk about slavery four times. And in a survey, only 8% of high school seniors knew that slavery was the central cause of the Civil War. But all that is to say, now that you know that you don't know things, it's time for you to take responsibility for your own education and go to the many resources available to you. You know, you can really start with our book. It really honestly is a great level setting guide, but we have so many other resources out there that you can use, whether they're podcasts or online courses, there's so many movies, other incredible books, you know, there's stuff out there for you to learn, to get that confidence to begin speaking out. But this is where we do need to caution. Don't ask your black friends to teach you things because it's not their responsibility. It is every single one of our responsibilities to teach ourselves things, get comfortable learning more, decentering ourselves, and really know how to begin asking thoughtful questions and listening, really, really listening deeply to people's replies. So do some of the research. Don't get caught up in only listening and learning because we do need to do action, like you mentioned in deconstructing that I'm not racist part. But just remember, there's no expectation of perfection, right? We're humans. We make mistakes. Misasha, you and I make mistakes in these conversations all the time, but it's about our ability to be confident and have curiosity, humility, the ability to apologize and learn and grow from our mistakes. I think these are kind of like grown-up skills. So all of this is to say we don't believe in cancel culture because we don't believe in this idea of perfectionism and that you have to get it right the first time. Keep going. I love that. I think that's so important to keep in mind. And, you know, you mentioned responsibility, right? And I think this is sort of the harder pushback that we get when people don't see it as their responsibility to speak up and make change. And, you know, I know you remember this episode, Sarah, but we had this one conversation with Irvin Staub, who survived that Nazi, the Nazi invasion and all of Nazi Germany, basically in Europe when he was a young boy. And he really sort of brought that cold, hard truth home. We can't make people care about other people. And, you know, that hurts to admit it. It hurts to, you know, know that that is true. 
And there's nothing that we can do, right, to have to convince you to care at all about someone other than yourself. And at the same time, if we, you know, take what we have been taught as Americans, right, and sort of put to the side all of this ridiculousness about people being individuals and, you know, our success is just because we picked ourselves up and worked so hard, we lived the American dream, and actually remember that there, it's not just us who makes our life possible. There's a whole network of people, right, who make our lives happen, you know, from the people who help us get cell service, right? To those who pick up trash from our houses, to those who stock groceries at the supermarket so that we don't have to have our own individual farms. You know, maybe if we're more cognizant of that and we acknowledge that we're in it together and that we're actually all better, we're all better, if we're all doing better, then that's a start, right? But on top of that, you know, if we want to have a little bit more of a hot take, right? And we do, by the way, we say that white people have a race too. And historically, it's been the most privileged one in this country. And, you know, I just use the word privilege. So don't worry, next week's episode is all about white privilege. And guess what? Guess who created those systems and hierarchical systems so that they could stay on top? That would be white people. And doesn't that feel yucky? I mean, like when we really sit and think about that, doesn't feel good. So wouldn't you want to do something about treating everybody as human, including yourself, right? And not putting all these pressures on yourself to be perfect and the best and the strongest individually, right? And all those things. Love it. Okay. (laughs) Next bucket. Fourth out of five, what do we say or do about the kids? We get lots of questions from people about this, right? All right. What's the worst thing you've heard from people about kids? (sighs) You know, this is my least favorite question. Yes. It's when white parents very seriously ask, you know, or make a statement rather, not even ask that I don't want to talk about race with my white kids because I don't want to traumatize them. And, you know, hearing that is just like sort of a gut punch, right? Because that ability to make that statement in and of itself is privileged, right? Because in my house, we talk about race and racism all the time because it's about survival, right? It is not a choice. And the fact that families believe that it is a choice, if you are white, indicates that we're not still thinking, we're not thinking at all, rather, not still, that we're in this together, right? But we are all in this system, of white supremacy. So we are all in it together. We all need to be talking about race. Yeah. I mean, do you talk to your kids about their hair color, eye color, height, strength? You know, if you're, at least this happened to me in two separate occasions, you know, about other people in wheelchairs or why is that person so wrinkly? If you're talking to your kids about how people are different or how their bodies show up, skin color should be a conversation too, because every single one of us shows up with a skin tone. So I really think it's easy. It happened to me when I was a kid when I, and I'll tell you the story in a second, but let your kids name their skin color, let them recognize the difference, you know, have all the multicolor crayons and all the things. My daughter was asking when she was little, way before, you know, Crayola and all these companies had skin tone crayons and the variety of skin tone papers and all that sort of stuff. And we'll ask for the skin color crayon. And I'm like, what is that actually? Like we have to have a conversation about what skin color you're looking for, kiddo. And she named her color peach and we moved on. Kids can have this conversation over and over again, because it's not a one and done. So I think make sure when they're little, you're identifying the skin tone. And as they get older, then you can start talking about the societal structures that have been created to judge people based on their skin. 
I think personally, I can't let this part of the conversation go without emphasizing this one thing. I don't know. Hopefully it's okay for me to say this, Misasha. I really believe strongly white parents, you have to tell your kids the N-word one time and one time only so they know never, ever, ever, ever to say it. And I think it's important to have this conversation with children when they're in elementary school, because by the time my daughter was in third grade, she came home telling me that a friend had been called it at school. So we have a whole episode on the N-word later on this summer. So just follow the podcast, Dear White Women, wherever you're listening to the show now so you don't miss it. But I think that's really important part of the conversation because I don't want my kid to be the one using that. Kids are sponges. Kids get difference and kids absolutely get right and wrong. Keep having these talks with them. I will say, and we can get into this deeper in you know our inward episode, as a parent of Black boys, I am waiting for that day when they are called the N-word. You know, and I want to be very clear about that for white parents, because that could be your kid that is calling my kid what is the worst slur that I could think of that exists in our society on a racial level. And that could be happening because you're not having this conversation at home. So if you think that's not your kid, I hope that's the case. But we know kids always surprise us. All right. Not to get all down on the kids. The kids are amazing. But let's pump us up a little. What power do women have? And I think this is so great, right? Women have a lot of power in many different spheres of influence. And I think that society a lot of times, and maybe we have told ourselves, right, that we don't have this power or this power is diminished. That's not true. Because think about your daily life, right? Think of all the different spheres and places that you exist in, the kitchen table, the workplace, you know, in your school, the PTA, how you raise your children, the wallet power that you have and how you spend your money and your family's money. And importantly, especially as we're heading into a big election year, we're in election summer, too, with the primaries, the people and policies you vote into power. You know, sure, there are a lot of pressures that society puts on us as women saying that we can't be angry, that, you know, we are less than men. But guess what? You know, there are so many other phrases out there like happy wife, happy life, and, you know, that women are the neck and <clears throat> that turn the men who are the heads, right? I think those phrases are out there for a reason. And those are gross generalizations, to be sure. But it's an important reminder that each of us has the power to make little changes and those little changes will ripple into bigger ones. And I think if we look at women historically, and not even historically, if we look at women who are in leadership roles in other countries than our own, right? They are the community builders, the consensus seekers, the similarity finders. You know, let's use all of those generalizations and the skills that we each do have to find the humanity in every single person. Because as we just discussed, like, unless you're living off the grid, you know the fundamental truth that if we live in communities, we are all interconnected and we all need each other. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>